Detroit and the world. Welcome to another episode of Authentically Detroit, broadcasting live from the Lower East Side here in the city, sponsored by the East Side Community Network and sponsored by the Ford Foundation. We're a content partner to the new BridgeDetroit.com. I'm Orlando Bailey. And I'm Donna Givens-Davidson. Thank you for listening in and supporting our efforts to build a platform of authentic voices for real people on the east side of Detroit. We want you to like, rate, and subscribe to our podcast on whatever platform you listen to us on. And we are we are on all platforms. We drop a new episode every week, so be sure to turn on those notifications. We are one day removed from the retirement announcement of current Detroit Police Chief James Craig. His official last day will be on June 1st. There has been much speculation about his political future in the state. He declined to go political yesterday, but not without first revealing his political affiliation with the Republican Party. Here to talk to us about her own work on addressing public safety as well as the chief's announcement, his record and his bombshell declaration of him being a Republican is Alea Harvey Quinn. Alea is the executive director of Forest Detroit. She is passionate about community organizing, arts education, social justice and media creation that centers communities as experts and narrators of their own stories. I love that. Alea, welcome to Authentically Detroit. Thank you for having me. I love your platform. I watch it regularly. Oh, thank Thank you. you. I can't believe this is your first time on here. Donna, what have we been doing? We've been sleeping. You know, listen, I think sometimes you just take some of these people that you know for granted. I knew and met Alea when she was 22 or 23 years old a young fireball. I mean, Alea was going to set the world on fire. And I absolutely love that about her. Um, She's always brought so much passion and authenticity to her work. And um, so watching her grow over the years into this really, um, you know, impressive woman, I've listened to people every time somebody talks about Alea Harvey Quinn in the community or forced to try to feel like it's my child. So let me just say to you, Alea, I'm so proud of you and the woman that you have become, but it was always in you from the time I met you. You always had such a clear vision for justice and it's changed over time as as we get older, we know more, but it's always been there. (laughs) Thank you for having me. I do feel like you you might as well take part ownership of this, (laughs) definitely, right? In terms of uh, learning the skill sets that I'm applying now, they started when I was first employed by Vanguard and I just didn't leave, right? Like I was a big kid and I just wanted to be there. I wanted to play the spades. I wanted to make the art. I wanted to do the sister circles. Um, So thank you for welcoming me into this work. Uh, What an amazing testament to your leadership, Donna. I mean, Leaders build leaders. And Alea, I too have a great deal of gratitude. I'm indebted to everything that Donna Givens Davison has taught me over the years and continue to teach. And so Donna appreciation at the top of the hour. I'm not mad at it. <laughs> at the top of the hour. <laughs> Human check-in, y'all. That's what we want to do. How does this blessed day find each of you? Well, I am back in the office at work, Um, so I'm super excited to not work from home now. I may not come every day, but I'm going to come a few days a week. I saw Orlando at work yesterday, and that was cool, but um, I'm beginning to try to rebuild my connection to the community that we serve because I felt very isolated 
working from home and you know it's really hard to do community development from your um you know home office <laughs> yeah yeah same here forest detroit is trying to reach out into the neighborhoods and it's really really hard to do under the pandemic circumstances so mm -hmm. i just left a barber shop and um one of the the organizers i work with zoe um he's on my team he's got this uh these brilliant leaders that you know came through the barbershop and talk about their plans for the community and they're building a pocket you know all the stuff that folks are excited about and i miss that connection that organic sort of touch point where beautiful things become built mm, yeah i love that yeah so I, I don't know if you guys watched uh, the Red Table Talks with Jada Pinkett Smith and her mom and daughter, but her daughter is always like, mm, yeah, right. I feel like it's going to be a lot of that for me to Alea after she speaks because just, mm -hmm. I mean, just prose whenever she opens up her mouth. I, you know, I'm finding myself in a place of, you know, curiosity. I was saying to Donna yesterday that I'm really curious about research uh, that may be out there or that is forthcoming around um, folks who have gotten sick during this pandemic or folks who have been folks who have been extremely isolated during this pandemic. The mental health implications of that, uh, the cognitive implications of that. I was sharing with her yesterday that uh, after I emerged from being sick last year, I did not and still don't feel as sharp as I once felt. Um, it takes me a minute to you know, uh, articulate my thoughts and what I'm thinking and it used to just come. <laughs> and so I'm wondering if, you know, if that is a result of just social isolation. So I'm super excited to sort of you know, re-engage socially because I know that could, take a toll on your cognitive abilities or if it was just if it's something that came from being sick and so I'm I'm curious but I'm feeling good I'm feeling good uh, and optimistic do you all feel like your cognitive uh, abilities have taken a hit being socially isolated this past year I mean I wasn't really isolated so it's not similar for me in that sense because you know um, I had somebody to talk to every day, all day, you know, it was yeah. like, okay, um, a, you know, a, a honeymoon, right? It was like extended, like, you know, so it was a different kind of experience for me than I think you had. But what about you, Elaine? Did you feel like you were missing out on that? Yeah, I think um, the healthiest thing that could have happened to my um, interesting, <laughs> I'll say that my family is full of activists. And so I, I'll say that the 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 most beautiful thing that could have happened is that we'd be locked up in a house together because then we start making bread and playing the family games. And so I think uh, the pandemic was healthy for my family, actually. Nice. All right, looking forward to more research to come out about that. I'm sure it's coming. Listen, it's time for Fresh Off the Press, news that we are thinking about. If you have pieces that you want discussed on Authentically Detroit, you can hit us up on our socials at Authentically Detroit on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, or you can email us. And y'all have really been in our email inbox lately. Thank you. <laughs> we, we appreciate you for listening at AuthenticallyDetroit at gmail.com. Donna, Fresh Off the Press. Well, this one was um, published in um, British Detroit yesterday. Why a successful lawyer became an advocate for Detroit neighborhood development. 
And the article is written about our good friend Orlando Chase Cantrell. Yeah. Somebody who I knew had worked at Dykema-Gossett and I knew he left there, took a big pay cut and ended up working to really try to invest his skills and build the skills of people who wanted to develop their own neighborhoods. So he's um, been so impactful in some neighborhoods. If you look at the neighborhood around um, Herman Kiefer, he's helping mm-hmm. to build, um, I'm trying to remember her name. I need to remember people's names. Maybe this is what I've lost. Is it Mona Lisa or he's, no, it's somebody. Yeah, Mona Lisa Development. Mona Lisa Development, yes. So he's helped um, so into Mona Lisa Development, which is trying to build Black in that neighborhood and trying to retain oh. ownership. So here you have some a man who learned all of the skills of the trade and brought it home. You just got to respect Chase for that. What I was not aware of was the enormous emotional and physical sacrifice, I mean, physical sacrifice he made. And it just made me realize that now he's got this exciting project on Six Mile, building community development, has graduated how many people over the years. And so he's become almost a Detroit institution. If I have a legal question, and I don't want to put this out there because I'm afraid other people might take him up on it, but if I have an e- e- a legal question, I index Chase. And Chase is going to give you the real thoughtful analysis of what's needed when the blight bond came up. We contacted Jason, sat down with community development corporations and really mapped out. These are all of the things that are included in this. So he's a treasure to the community and as a friend, but to see him highlighted and to have his story there just made me feel wonderful. I was like, yes, we need to do more of that. And I hope Bridge Detroit does more to highlight some of the amazing Detroiters that exist because there are so many wonderful stories about people. And sometimes the only thing we read is bad news. Mm-hmm. So um, hats off to Chase. We love you. We respect your work. And I'm just glad other people get to know about you because I tell everybody about Chase. Yeah, yeah. And y- you know what, Donna? I often also use that ESQ behind his name. <laughs> 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 I'm, I'm, I'm glad I'm glad we're friends because he doesn't bill me. Uh, but, you know, uh, the work that he's doing with building community value with Monique Becker, of Mona Lisa Development, uh, his personal um, investment on the uh, McNichols Corridor and BCV actually launching a project in Corktown. It is all just, you know, admirable. And, you know, what he is doing sort of, it reminds me of something that our friend uh, Marlo Stoudemire used to say when he would say, I am tired of people coming into our own neighborhoods, turning us into consumers. And what Chase is doing is empowering and teaching neighborhood people how to do development, small-scale development, or large-scale development in their own neighborhoods. And so, as I often think about Marlo every day, uh, I would say that Chase is the embodiment of that statement that Marlo would make all the time. So he just made uh, D businesses 30 in their 30s or something like that. So super, super happy to call him uh, a really good friend, a brother um, and colleague in this work. Yeah. And just one more thing, you know, the amazing thing about Chase is that he got his head turned by a Black developer in his 70s when he was, who was in the um, Meyer deal on Eight Mile. And the brother said to him, you need to be a developer. You need to take your legal skills and be a developer and become an owner. And it changed his thinking. 
here he has been setting up all of these deals across the city. So many, I had no idea that he had invested. Yeah. And, um, and, and somebody helped trigger this thinking that you can own your own, you can lead this. And so initially he started out to be a developer and then this opportunity to teach fell into his lap. And so now he is a developer and a teacher and it's finally starting to get traction after investing so much of his own money and effort into this. So hats off to Chase. And taking that and taking that pay cut, right? So he listened. He listened in an article that he was making one hundred twenty thousand a year. And anybody who works for you know nonprofit startups and community development Ooh. in Detroit, you know, huh? Yeah. <laughs> Can yeah. I get put this away? <laughs> it's, it's real. It's a little real. <laughs> Yeah. You get paid in love. <laughs> Orlando, <laughs> yes, you do. That's real. Oh, man. We commend him for the personal sacrifice. Fresh off the press, Detroit to get $440 million in federal aid. Now to figure out how to spend it. This is by Louis Aguilar reporting for British Detroit. So this is about half of all of the federal allocation that uh, the city of Detroit is supposed to get. It's supposed to get around uh, $880 million upwards um, in that number. So right now, there doesn't seem to be any uh, restrictions or, yeah, I would say restrictions on part of the federal government in terms of how Detroit uh, should spend this money. Um, and we have really no idea in terms of how Detroit or the mayor and city council is thinking about spending this money. And so I really wanted uh, to bring this uh, to our listeners' attention that the city is receiving an influx of cash right now that I think uh, we have a tremendous opportunity to figure out and to state where we want that money to go since the federal government hasn't given many guidelines to these local governments. Only about four or five cities got more money than Detroit. And that's like big, big cities like New York and Los Angeles um, and even um, Philadelphia. And so we know that the city um, has lost uh, tax revenues since the onset of the COVID-19 uh, pandemic. Uh, but we do know that city officials have said that they will wait to hear uh, guidelines from the feds. But that isn't stopping us from dreaming up and thinking up <laughs> where and what that money should be doing in our community. So this is half. We should receive the other half probably within uh, the the next year. Donna, you got ideas? What are we going to do with this 400? <laughs> do I have ideas? You're talking to, okay? Yeah. I think that um, really there's some things the city needs to do that um, that should be low hanging fruit. Uh, as an East Sider and Jeff Thomas, you got to rebuild the seawall, right? Mm -hmm. Got a whole neighborhood that's in a flood zone, and the residents there are going to be forced to get flood insurance. And you have basements that are backing up. So how about building a seawall? There was a time when Detroit was asked to do it, like Rose Point Park did for their residents, and the city of Detroit said, "We don't have the money." Well, now you do. Mm -hmm. How about helping to subsidize affordable housing in the city of Detroit? Not real housing affordability, understanding mm -hmm. what's going to happen um, as a result of pen, uh, people losing the moratorium on um, water shutoffs. How about mm, um, a home repair fund for folks who qualify inside mm -hmm. the city? I can spend all of that money really quick. We have 10 strategic neighborhoods. Can we double that and have 20? 
Look, if you had $150 million in 10 neighborhoods, I am certain you can get 10 more out of that $440 million and invest money in fixing up the neighborhoods. We have sidewalks and trees. It's the basic stuff that every resident in the city of Detroit should have access to and they don't. We need a recreation center on the east side of Detroit. And District, four, have, District four right? has no recreation. Well, I'm not even going to ask him to build a recreation center, but we have the Stoudemire Wellness Hub, and you can help fix us up over here on the east side. We're on Connor, just on the other side of the Fiat Chrysler plant that you paid to help expand, and we need help right here. So we actually submitted a grant to um, Rashida Talib, and we were included in, in one of her 10 projects. And so if the mayor would like to take us off the list and just say, we'll fund you ourselves, um, it's not that much money and they can do it. Um, it's a priority in our community. I do, do want think? to put a footnote here and say that uh, there will be guidelines coming from the federal government and Detroit will have to go from there in deciding how that money wants to be spent. The interesting fact is this, that uh, both the mayor and city council will have to approve uh, the uh -huh. direction of how this money is going to be spent. And so I think therein lies a significant opportunity for visioning and activism, um, especially with your city council representatives, who I got to say just lately been disappointing. Um, just, and I've said that on the show before in terms of how they have uh, been voting for, for things. And so I, I, I really want to see in their lame duck sessions, a balance, you know, a rebalance of power, a rebalance of power and pushback on, um, on what this, how this money will be spent and really, you know, listen to folks. Cause I know folks are organizing around this. Alea, you have any input? Yeah. I mean, two things, I, safety, right. Um, that's a, a number one cry. I mean, our returning citizens, they need support, but just on a more humane level, Detroit is so poor. There is so much that we could do in terms of basic needs, right? We don't want to hear about people reusing diapers, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. Some of the, the stories that are like um, about the cruelness of poverty could go away. Mm -hmm. They could go away, right? We could have vouchers for diapers just instantly. Um, and so I would like to see this money be used in a creative way that lessens uh, the, the painfulness of poverty of people that are just uh, really scraping by, people who lost their jobs and didn't have transferable skill sets. And let's remember y'all to <laughs> apply pressure, right? Our elected representatives are not our friends. They are politicians who we elect yeah. to represent us and we need to continue yeah. to remind them that we elected them to represent us. So apply pressure and don't let up. I think in between elections, we become comfortable. That's how you have a Kamala Harris and a Joe Biden doubling down on a Tim Scott statement about racism being non-existent in America. We cannot get comfortable. Apply the pressure to these folks and make sure that your voice is heard. Well, they, climb up a wall. they climb up a wall, they shut down North Carolina, they, you know, <laughs> nooses popping up, there's all kind of controversy. And now we got leaders saying that racism is not a thing in America. I was taken aback. Right after, right after this, we got the president to use the term systemic racism. He got backed down by a clown, a buffoon, 
who, um, you know, in the Republican Party who just made, it, it's ridiculous to me. But, you know, I, I want, want to just reiterate the word public servant. They work for us, right? Yeah. The other thing is a lot of times people tell you things are not possible that they choose not to do. They say, well, this is not doable within the law as if things like this have never been done. Our nation has a long track record of investing in affordable housing for white people. It's about time we did it for black folks as well, okay? I'm not talking about, um, I'm talking about home ownership. Remember FHA, when they invested in every single suburb in the United States of America, that was through governmental money. So don't tell me you can't do it. You can't tell me the city cannot invest in infrastructure in the city of Detroit when Gross Point Park did it for their wealthier neighbors there. You cannot tell me that basic needs do not, do not deserve right. investment. There was a poverty task force that looked at some of this stuff. But here's the deal. Every time you talk about poverty, somebody wants to throw you names of a job training program. And so every poor person is even capable of being trained. And as if our economy is prepared to absorb every kind of person. There are some yeah. people who are unemployable for reasons that we don't need to go on here. You know, there's some people who are just not going to be hired, whether it's because of a criminal background or it's because they have a disability or it's because of them just not having the type of socialization that fits into work, most workplaces. Yeah. If housing is a human right, if food is a human right, and if water is a human right, and I'm prepared to say it is, then we've got to do this. And I don't consider the United States a Christian nation, but the United States, many people who are opposing all of this do consider the United States a Christian nation. And I want to know what a Christian nation is without Christ, because the only thing I know is that in the Bible, the only thing I remember Jesus talking about was feeding people, sheltering people, clothing people, and loving each other. And so you can't have it both ways. And I think we need to push back on this narrative that we can't do more. I think that we have to push back on this narrative that it's not my concern that some people, that people are using diapers. That's horrible that people are sharing medicine because they can't afford their own. Mm -hmm. You know, we have such a long way to go. The first thing we should be doing is trying to help resolve human misery. And yeah. the question that some people in our government say is, is that responsibility of government? Absolutely. And the flip side of human misery is sometimes chronic. Because if I can't get it through legal means, I'm going to have to get it some other way. We know there's huge sections of our city that are functioning without any type of formal income. Yes. How do you think they're living? <laughs> you know, it's like, yeah. I don't have a job. There's no welfare benefits really anymore. So of course I have to do things through an underground economy that sometimes involves criminal behavior and sometimes places me at risk for criminal consequences. We'll talk about that later, but I have a lot of exciting ideas. I wish we had the kind of mayor that would ask us. I wish I would have the kind, we had the kind of city council that would sit down with community organizations like mine and Alea's and say, hey guys, well, how do you think we should spend our money? Yeah, I do want yeah. to acknowledge that uh, city council president pro tem Mary Sheffield is slated to appear at a community meeting that Janine Hatcher and her organization, Genesis Hope is convening. Um, we'll put the date for that meeting in the description because it is, it, it's escaping me right now, but Mary, it looks like Mary Sheffield is interested in having that conversation in the street. Sure, but it's a conversation that the way it needs to happen is city council convening community leaders and saying, tell us what you think, right? Not showing up at my meeting and listening to what I have to say, but actively 
soliciting that information. So my criticism is not directed at any one city council person, mm -hmm. but I think that the way that we engage in participatory budgeting and prioritization of needs yeah. has got to change that we can make sure that the people who it depends and the people who are making these decisions are really actively listening, not just hearing, but actively listening to what is happening in the community. Um, we and already agree that those of us who are working here are not millionaires, right? Yeah. So we're here with a mindset of service. And also not being selective, and I'm going to say this, in who is deemed community leaders, because there is a, a method of gatekeeping that takes place um, at, you know, at many different levels, but especially on a municipal level in whom the city chooses to engage in and listen to. Yep, I said it, and I'll say it again. All right, so we really have to, you know, apply that pressure. So that will wrap up our fresh off the press segment. If you have pieces that you want discussed on Authentically Detroit, you can hit us up on our socials and Authentically Detroit on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. And you all have definitely been doing that. We thank you and appreciate your feedback. Alea, we are so happy that you're here because we really want to talk to you about all of the work that Force Detroit is championing this year and this uh, Chief James Craig announcement that has the city and the state reeling. Um, but before we get, I, I really want to get your reaction to his announcement um, yesterday, as, as well as Donna's, but we first want you to lay some groundwork about you, the mission of Force Detroit, um how, your you know your current work how we can get involved and if you know there is some intersections uh of your work that you know partners with the Detroit Police Department yeah so I mean that's a whole mouthful so <laughs> I founded Force Detroit um me and a team of leaders out of the Church of Messiah um, Force Detroit is dedicated to connecting impacted people to opportunities to make justice-oriented solutions. And we deal with particularly issues of safety, criminal justice reform, and criminalization. And, um, you know, look us up at forcedetroit.org. Now, you know, just to skip past all of the commercials and talk about um, Chief Craig, I, I feel like Detroiters are disheartening. Um, I feel like most of us, we want to have a conversation with police that is very, very tense, right? We, we don't want to get robbed and we don't want our kids to go to prison. And most of, many of our uh, residents are stuck in between these places, right? We have um, our own safety concerns. We don't want our cars stolen. We don't want our homes invaded. Um, and yet many of us, even the elders will have grandchildren and we don't want to see them go to prison, right? We will shelter them, whereas um, we still want um, policing that allows us to be safe. So folks just want, you know, so I feel like we've been on a journey with, um, DPD for a while around like community policing and trying to build these relationships and you know hoping for the best because we somewhat see a um a force that is responsive to community and that um and that looks like us 
And we hope that means that you have the same, you know, concerns as us, right? That you don't want to see other Black people disproportionately killed or imprisoned and, and things like this. For you now, I know he didn't go political, but it is rumored that he would side with the GOP. He said I, he no, he said it. He said, I'm a Republican and many of you all know it. I'm a conservative. Yeah, I mean, so I feel like that's disrespectful to this journey that we've been on this whole time. But, you know, right? I have to ask you, I have to ask you this. He said that last year, he said that Black Lives Matter was Marxist and anarchist who were just trying to destroy government and had no, had no positive purpose. He has been on Fox News, on Hannah T, on Gene Pirro's show and the most racist and racist of shows. He, when he was, when the federal judge said that the police department um, could no longer um, um, violate the rights or brutalize the, the protesters, he pushed back and said, no, we're gonna keep on doing, we're doing, we haven't done anything wrong. You saw a car trying to run over people. I saw a police officer's knee in the neck of a young woman who was a protester. And around the block from me last year, not too far from where we are right now in Gratiot, um, they did, they performed a military removal maneuver to mass arrest people who were marching down Gratiot. And the way, the rationale yeah. was these are outsiders, yeah. right? And yeah. we don't need these outsiders coming in causing trouble in our city. But when the Nazi party walked, marched off of the city and sometimes disrespected folks, there were no police violence. And more importantly, last year, after the election, when the election workers were trying to count the votes, people were there knocking on windows, throwing things, threatening people, creating. It was so bad. Orlando called me and said, Donna, who do you know? And I was like, well, I know the police. Aren't they there? And yet he said they were mostly peaceful. And I don't know anybody who was down there at the TCF center who felt the police were mostly peaceful. So I wonder, having seen all of these things from my living room, because again, I, I wasn't out there last year, I was too afraid of COVID, how people could have not perceived that this man was hostile to the interest of black people, because I felt that way. And I know many other people kind of felt that way about him. Yeah, so, I mean, I will not, I, I think that's, that's what I mean as far as being on this journey. It's a trapeze act, literally, of, trying to understand um, the vantage point, right? So these cops that were shot at, they're black too. And, shot at. you know, Hakeem Littleton, the Hakeem Littleton. Oh yes, uh -huh. that, that, but that's, that's one instance. That's, yeah. yeah, absolutely. And it does not excuse, um, it does not skew, excuse driving over protesters. But I wonder what your, response is if the protesters are breaking out the glass of your car so that's what I mean like most people are trying to figure out um but weren't they trying to break out the glass of the TCF center I wasn't down there but I've heard people say that's what they were trying to do and I guess my question is and this was before Hakeem Littleton I think or maybe it wasn't maybe Hakeem Littleton happened before that before Hakeem Littleton, you had a police car trying to drive over people and the police car was still and it started moving and you had people marching down Gratiot and they weren't throwing anything at anybody. And so my question is, I think that's what gets 
kind of, and maybe people get real close up and personal and don't really see it from the perspectives of people who are just sitting there watching it on TV. Because for me, it seems pretty obvious that yes, you have to do something if somebody's shooting at police. I don't know that what they did had to happen, but you have to do something if somebody's shooting at police. In some of the instances, there was no shooting. Best practice, best practice is to stand down. The police shouldn't be present. And if they are present, they should be present in um, civilian gear um, and, and should appear to be as less militaristic as possible. That is what uh, federal directives around, federal research around justice looks like in this area. And actually it was Malanka Clark uh, mm -hmm. that had a, a heavy hand in producing that research for the White House. Mm -hmm. You know, one and of that's the really how they showed up at TCF was not in military gear at TCF. Did they show up in military gear at TCF? No, they were in their regular old uniforms hanging out um, in the front. I spoke to a couple of them. My brother was also there, who is a, a cop with DPD. One of the things, though, that that I would say I had to do, I had to pay attention during and after the Craig announcement um, of his retirement and then, uh, him announcing that he's a Republican, but then refraining from going political where well, you already went political yeah. is I had to pay attention to how my body reacted. I had to pay yeah. attention to what my body felt and why yeah. it was feeling what it was feeling. And I felt a very, I felt very tense. Um, I felt very, uh, angry. Right. And I had to, I, I, I had to really interrogate why I was feeling that way. And I think that uh, when we look at sweeping legislation across the United States that prohibits or strongly uh, makes it harder for marginalized groups to vote out of states everywhere, Republicans are yeah. producing this sweeping legislation I get tense about that. I, I'm tense about a black man aligning himself with a party that does that. I get tense when I think about uh, the accepted leadership and narrative cascaded from Donald Trump into the Republican party around this new campaign around the big lie and the election being a fraud and a black man serving a predominantly black city um, as a police chief with access to paramilitary materials, I'm, I'm tense about that. I'm tense about uh, the rhetoric of a party that not only sought to oppress the vote from Black cities across America, but take it from them and declare that it was widespread, widespread fraud. And when the yeah. chief was asked yesterday whether or not he believed that he declined to answer, stating that he wouldn't get political, my chest gets a little tight about this kind, this kind of stuff. And so I, I am, I'm it, to me, it is extremely problematic for a man in his position to align himself with the rhetoric value of today's. Republican Party 
uh, I can respect a good old conservative, limited government. I'm a Christian, Christian values. Like I, I get that and I can respect that. But what we are seeing today is an outright assault on black people and the upliftment of everything that has to do with white supremacy. And so- I agree and I wanna add. Go ahead. Because what you didn't say was that for decades around the war on drugs, what he and his badge represents inherently, no matter who wears it, no matter what skin they're cloaked in, is they rep represent the continued legacy of slavery in our community. And as we look, I got two little boys, right? I got a son that's eight and I got a son that's five, mm -hmm. right? And I hope, like my parents were both Black Panthers. I hope that they are not still doing this work that I'm doing today when they grow up. I hope that my work has the impact of lessening and, and the, the work of you know, national organizations and activists. I don't think you know, Forest Detroit is gonna take down this empire by itself, but I hope that our work collectively has the impact of, um, of setting the course of uh, criminal justice reform and policing um, uh, beginning to dismantle it and figuring out what community-owned safety begins to look like, right? Mm -hmm. But all of that legacy of, um, of enslavement, of the threat of immediate death and harm, uh, disproportionate uh, harm and brutalization of Black men and boys, even by other, like the cop, uh, what's his name, Eugene Moore, during the 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 nineties and early two thousands? I was a brother. I'm trying to look him up, even as you're saying this. I was trying to remember what Eugene's last name. It is in my phone. Eugene. I'm like, what is his name? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Eugene Moore. Right. This was a black man. Right. It was a prolific killer of black men. Yes. So what this represents, this is historic. For our community, there are children. There are children that get their social that that learn their politics in visiting room in in visiting rooms in prison, right? They learn those politics by the way the guards treat. I'm one of those children, right? And so, two brothers. And so we, Me too. Yeah, and so we feel this. This is visceral, right? This connects to nightmares. I don't know how you felt about where you moved around. I'll tell you that when I got my first job, the reason I didn't move out to the suburbs is because I was scared that the guy that I was dating and eventually married was going to be harmed or attacked by the police in the suburbs, right? Mm -hmm. um, I think we have to look at the history of policing and we have to look at the history yeah. of that badge and we have to look at the reality that even on plantations, you have black overseers and you also have black plantation owners. A black face does not protect black people, okay? What protects black people is the law. And I get what people say about limited government. I respect everybody's right to believe what they wanna believe kind of, but not really. But you know, to a certain extent, I do have some respect for some beliefs, but I think we need to disentangle what people mean by limited government. What they really mean a lot of times is limited, limited government spending on poor people and excessive government spending on rich people, government welfare, okay? What they mean is limited control, limited government when it comes to 
controlling your guns and maximum government when it comes to controlling women's bodies. So that limited government thing is ridiculous to me. I also think that we have to be very careful as black people around what we do with the constitution of the United States of America that enslaved us and stole land from Native Americans and try to understand that the framers of that were not infallible. The framers of that were not perfect people. In fact, they were people who were either evil or tolerant of evil because slavery is evil. And they enshrined that in the founding documents and the subordination of women and the the, the importance of wealth. And so as we move forward, if we're really talking about justice, we can't be talking about any of that because all of that to decades, I mean, centuries of oppression. Yeah, so what, and what we have to remember in this is that these are systems, right? Um, and so when you become an actor in a part of a system, that system does what it was designed to do, right? right. The GOP is going to do what it designed. Craig ain't going to get in there and revolutionize the GOP platform. <laughs> Craig is going to get in there, hopefully won't at all. But if he did, he would be an actor within a system. He wouldn't negate anything about how that system operates. Right, a system doesn't need individual actors to represent to to um continue to thrive. It it will feel that cog with any living person, especially especially the GLP, because there is a difference. Well, also policing units, right? Yes, and policing units, but especially there are certain systems that are more sacrosanct than others. If the GOP, which has always existed, and I didn't understand this until recently in this past year being you know, shut in and learning a lot. Um, the GOP, even when the GOP was about the business of trying to end slavery, that was on behalf of businesses. The GOP has always been about the business class and what is, what, what is best for the business class. And any type of support they gave to black people was really at a certain point in time used to pivot black people against white working class to keep them in their place. So reconstruction and all of these things were directed at one group of people and we ended up being leverage, okay? When Detroit was formed, when Henry Ford was forming his, um, his industrial plants in Detroit, the reason they brought immigrants in was to help control white native labor. And when the immigrants went away after World War I and they had to bring in black people up north, black people were used all over the up north to um, be a, 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 a control of white labor. So if you want to strike, we've got these strike breakers. We know you hate them because we've helped to facilitate that hate and we'll bring them in. That is one of the reasons why we had the bloody summer of 1917, 1918, 1919 was white workers fighting black workers because white were playing us against each other and they were in the GOP. So even though people will say, you know, my people used to be Republican and the Republicans to a certain extent did support black people. The reason they supported us is because it helped them maintain their wealth. And when we became unionized and we began asserting certain rights and the union started letting us in, we became more associated with the Democratic Party 
which was always about the white working class. So even though the parties change colors and stuff like that, I think it's important for us to understand that we have always been of use to whichever political party has supported us. At one point, we were of use to the Republican Party. Now we are of use to the Democratic Party in getting Republicans out of office and to maintain these supports. The question for us is how can we be of use to ourselves and each other and not allow ourselves to be- That's the, that's the question. Republican because we can go through the history of this nation. And this, we've always been you know, objectified. We've always been commodified. We have always been of use. And there have always been respectable Negroes for sale who will transgress against the best interests of his own community, his or her own community. I just want to because also- they are of use. Of use. Chief but I also Craig is of use. People say white people will not support Chief Craig. Of course they will. He is of use to them. And we have to understand strategically where we fit in this or we end up saying, well, this is a brother. Yeah. I want to acknowledge the the trauma response that some of us had uh, to this. And that's what I realized that I was going through yesterday. And I was just like in, in a horrible funk. I, so I want to acknowledge that to our listeners and say, number one, you aren't the only one. And number two, we see you because I often think that uh, we don't spend enough time talking about the mental health implications of some of these policies and decisions yeah. that we have has on our community. I also want to point out one nuance, and it's something that I saw from a lot of folks who may live uh, in the surrounding counties or out county from Wayne County and here in the city of Detroit, and that was you know, this, this adoption of this rigid law and order narrative that Craig has been perpetuating and adopted, recognizing that he has been the face of uh, cleaning up Detroit and clearing up crime on TV every day uh, to folks in Macomb and Oakland and you know other out counties who were expressing you know widespread support uh, yesterday for him, and I just wanted to point out that nuance because I think there is a different conversation when you get in the city and of the soil of the city around uh, our affection or the lack thereof for the police chief. Alea, can you tell us what's, what has been your experience with working with? Uh, Chief Craig and DPD around public. It has cleaned up crime. Has 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 crime improved under his watch? No, it has not. Um, not under pandemic conditions. Uh, well, since we've been working with him, it has not. Um, so I want to say that clearly. Um, violence went up thirty percent, um, and we are on track to you know maintain that record high this year. And so Force Detroit is launching a campaign entitled uh, Fun Peace, where we are advocating for some of these uh, resources that are coming into our city and our state to be used to reduce the impact of gun violence and to be used to restore community rather than um, police and control community. Um, what of our, you know, I've, I've gotta be honest, I was rather surprised at their ability to build relationships. Um, DPD is good at building relationships with activists. And um, I don't know that it serves the, 
I don't know that it serves the best interest of the people. Mm. um, Say more about that. Say more about that because I agree with you that they're good when they they engage. I sat on the 5th Precinct Community Relations Council for years and have a really good relationship with the people at the 5th Precinct. So can you say more? Yeah, I mean, some of our most ferocious activists um, don't question why Hakeem Littleton was killed. But mm. we but we can take down Dylan Roof and drive him by Burger King, right? Mm-hmm. We can take down active shooters occupying federal buildings that are white, right? And so we don't accept equal value for the idea of transformation and restoration at when it pertains to black and brown young people. The response to McKay O'Brien was heartbreaking because that little girl was me. I, that little girl was me. And I grew up in Ecorse. Anybody who knew me back then can testify that that little girl was me. And um, the widespread was, response was, no, she deserved that. Um, And of course, there were activists speaking out on the other side, but it was just so heartbreaking to see post after post after post. Y'all, this is why I don't get on Facebook. Post after post after post of people saying she deserved that. Why was Trayvon Martin wearing a hood? Like ridiculousness. We will question the smallest nuances around the value of our own children's lives, our own young people's lives, before we question, are there strategies that professional police officers can use to deescalate? What might it look like to approach this differently? Can we at least engage in this conversation, right? Um, that's, that's, that's heart shattering. And but because we also care about the police officer, we don't want to be perceived as as challenging that police officer when we ask the question, could the life be saved? And I, mean, I think that's really- I think we, that's what's happening. Mindset, I think we have this mindset that police officers are out there doing this dirty work for us, right? And they are out there taming the beast. And when your mindset is the police exist to tame the beast, and there's a certain level of uh, internalized oppression when Black people internalize that belief system, then you will accept anything. There's no way in hell white people would accept a white girl being shot like that down and say, that's okay, that's just in the course of doing business. And that's the reason why Dylan Roof gets, you know, gets arrested the way he does or the white kid who shot and killed people and is, um, I can't even think of his name and there's their fundraising. Kyle Rittenhouse. Kyle Rittenhouse, because we have to understand that we do not, our, our, how we are perceived as black people, we're not given the benefit of humanity. We have yeah. to prove our humanity. And in this instance, that girl's humanity was not clear to people. Yeah. It's. there's there's so much racism baked into how we perceive black girls, how we perceive dark-skinned girls. Somebody said heavyset black girls get treated in a different way than other girls do. And so I think if we really want to be honest about it, the police are doing work in a way they have this mindset and sometimes they have 
slogans or names that they call people who they see as being criminal, which are degrading and demeaning. Um, the way they speak about the community, you've heard that there's some police officers who refer to us as zoo animals. And when your mindset is I'm going in there into the zoo to claim yeah. to, to fix these people in the zoo, you're going to get zookeeper behavior. Mm -hmm. And that is by any means necessary. If I have to put down this animal for being too violent to save the other animals, I will. We have got to come to terms with that. What is the purpose of policing? And why is it that when you have this young lady, policing is the response to whatever pain she's in? Yeah. The yeah. brokenness, we all know there are broken people in every single neighborhood, in every single hood, but we see them behaving a certain kind of way. You remember, Leah, when we had the teen center and yeah. we had those young kids at, at Vanguard, at the Spot Teen Center, we had young kids who came in who were enormously broken. And, and how, many, how, many, how many fights did we de-escalate though? Zero. How many times? How many fights did we have? We had no fights. That's because we de-escalated. De That's what we I'm were, saying. Yeah. You intervened to save those kids' lives. Yeah. We had no fights. We had no vandalism. We had no thefts. We had none of the stuff. The one time there was going to be a kid snatching a jacket from another kid, they were going to jump this kid at a bus stop. Do you remember that? He walked in with this leather coat or whatever, and the other kids yeah. got mad because he walked in there and he was showing off flossing in front of their girls. Yeah. And they were going to go up to a bus stop and jump him. And the reason they didn't is because one of them went to you and Lottie and said, you know what, we're about to jump this kid up here at the bus stop because they wanted you to stop them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that was all I'm saying is that the police will always respond in ways. If we really, really, really had a concern about these kids, we would treat them the way we treat IV drug users who are white heroin addicts who are white, it becomes a disease. Her behavior becomes an illness. It becomes a body of research about violence as a public health issue, right? And we need to be doing more with that in our yep. city. And study it and understand it yeah. and get clues about it so that we're not sending police in at the last minute and saying, well, do whatever you have to do to get this girl in check. Yeah, I think we can hold, back to the original point, I, I just think we can hold the life of uh, our people valuable, and I think we can hold the life of police officers valuable, and we can say that we don't want to choose between the two, and we can demand that, you know? But we give police officers badges and guns, and they are professionals, and we expect them to exercise professionalism, and I think we have to have expectations around that. I agree, and right? The only thing that happens when the knee-jerk response is to give them the benefit of the doubt and to never even question despite record after record after record. I mean, um, yeah. his first abuse was not when he killed his, George Floyd. His first abuse was long before then, but we allow them to use just about anything to justify what they call necessary force so that by the time it gets to Chauvin, it's too late. And so I think we need to hold their lives in high regard, but I also think that we need to hold them to a high level of accountability. I agree. A higher level of accountability. I agree. Holy. If you're having issues, maybe you're having mental health problems, and maybe we need to treat police violence yes. as a public health issue 
and start getting you guys treatment before we let you go back on these streets. Absolutely. And they DPD does do that. Yeah. Alea, I want to acknowledge the the tension that you carry in your work. And I I having a blood relative on the police force, I, I understand it and I get I get the tension that you're trying to amplify in terms of uh caring on both sides, but also having, you know, very high accountability uh, for the professional. Can you, can you tell me how that looks in practicum in your work with Force Detroit, And Yeah, it, it looks like you, if we didn't hold that tension, we wouldn't work with police at all. Nobody on my team, literally, right? I, um, I grew up going to visit my father in prison and as a young girl wondering why they were treating me as if I had committed a crime when I entered and visited. So this is the only way that we are able to have a relationship is by, you know, considering the mutual humanness, right? But also there has to be accountability, right? You have to show up to the table, you have to respond and you have to answer the questions. When we um, send you a letter, um, DPD responded, right? They integrated um, mental, mental health supports um, and they're launching that and scaling up um, over time in partnership with Team Wellness and a number of other contractors, some national. Um, You know, so when we get responses like that, and then when we get, you know, we're engaging in these conversations, you know, it was a young person that I trained and and now he's an adult, he's gonna resent the fact that I called him a young person. Person. <laughs> but that it was a young person that I used to work with that I trained and supported that was having the, the car shows with uh, DPD and doing the work to, to restore licenses with people affiliated with car clubs and motorcycle clubs. And that is good work, right? Bringing people who would never have a conversation with law enforcement into the room, creating a restorative process, doing something that is culturally acceptable in a fun and safe way, right? Like, you know, because they are responsive, we're able to negotiate, right? Um, I couldn't imagine having a police force like the one that exists in Chicago. But I would say imagine having a police force like the Detroit police, especially given the way that protesters were treated last year. And so with that, with that bargaining power and that negotiating power, where were these same activists uh, that had the ear of DPD and the chief to de-escalate the- Oh, there was de-escalation. No, no, that is, no, that is a misnomer. There were activists in the middle of that stuff. There were activists calling brass specifically Bettison and Craig, and telling individual sergeants and people on the ground to stand down. And that is the reason why people got, people got hit with rubber bullets. They got hit with tear gas. We gave out awards for this last year. There was a group of people that did outstanding work. They put their lives on the line, standing between protesters and police. They were there. Mm-hmm. Now, does that mean that either side didn't escalate no not not all the time right it wasn't perfect right it was a wild time but the but the thing is that 
A federal judge concluded based on evidence that the Detroit police um, exceed, engaged in excessive brutality in a number of cases and, and gave an order to stand down. And, you know, I mean, protesters protest. And I'm not justifying everything that protesters do, but I can say there were times when, when reporters were rubber bulleted. I can say there were times when people who were not engaging in violent behavior were met, were met with violence. And the officers who engaged in that violence were not accountable at all. There's no consequence to them. Yeah, the and police okay. shouldn't have been there. The but police, the, like, there is there. federal research. The police just should not have been but there. They were there and they picked yeah. fights. They picked fights. They went places where they knew protesters are going to be just to enforce a curfew. So you're yeah. enforcing a status offense based on a, a rule that was imposed. And so I think that where it comes at from the outside is that those of us in, in some, some of us can't believe that the police were allowed to behave that way. And then Chief Craig went on Fox News and bragged yeah. about it. Yeah. And so how disrespected do we have to be to have our police chief on Fox News bragging about keeping our people in check. And so I think yeah. he also walked away with his image burnished by activists who said, hey, he's doing a great job. And when people said he needs to stand down, there were activists who marched and stood in support. More people stood in support of him than people who sat down. And now he is possibly going to run for governor from the city of Detroit with credentials that have been burnished by all of these people on the ground. And I guess my question is, how do we move forward from here? Because I think that close in, you see things that we don't see because you're in there and you're negotiating certain things and you get close in, but from people who are looking at it from afar, it looks different. You know what I mean? And we don't necessarily see what's happening close in. And you don't necessarily see the perspective of people who are not there having those conversations. My hairdresser's son was brutalized by Detroit police at a gas station. I know people who've been beaten by Detroit police. I know there was a woman who was evicted from her home by Detroit police officers based on her their landlord saying, you can't do this during a moratorium. And this brother still has his, or these people still have their badges. And this is this is what we talk to them about, right? This These are the experiences of my organizers. This is what we talk to them about, right? Is that there is a drastic difference. Let's be clear, I am not in defense of police, right? There is a drastic difference between how community activists, especially prominent community activists, get responded to by police than there is the average citizen, especially young men, especially young black men. Mm -hmm. Like, it's just a thing. And so until there is an equal and out of power, you, we've got to hold them accountable. I think we have to do we we have to do the work around civic education, right? Like this is now is the time to hump, right? Because people feel endeared by DPD's community police. Well, it's a, it's a great it's a great hustle. You have community police to show up at meetings and give out these statistics and you have people in the community, that person who wants the police to protect them, who calls the police and they never come. You have both yeah. things happen. You yeah. have greater police down response 
downtown and in the riverfront and in the Belle Isle, places where they're trying to make sure you don't violate curfew than you do in a lot of neighborhoods where you still have long distances and you still don't have great solve rates for crimes committed by people in the city of Detroit. And even despite, you know, Project Greenlight, you still have a lot going on. So my question is, what can we do to, and I think the, the problem is that we keep thinking the police will fix public safety. I think you said something profound earlier that policing does what it's designed to do. Yeah. And so public safety has to be something that resides outside of policing as often as possible or we'll never fix it. Yeah. What did you learn through your research? You did a lot of surveys and research around this. Yeah, so people don't know what safety is. Safety is a nosy neighbor who is going to tell you who was around your house. Safety I know that's right. <laughs> being cool with those little boys or I should say young men that are playing basketball in the street in your hood. Safety is um, being connected to your neighbors. This is when you don't have to worry about an imp imminent threat that won't penetrate your network, right? Um, and so those are, you know, concepts of what safety actually is. Safety is not enhanced security, but you want them to record it when you want your cameras to record it when they break in. I mean, that's awesome for finding out who did it after the fact, right? That's not going to stop anything. The police arrest somebody that's not stopping anything. Safety is actually the opposite of what the police are designed to do. The police are designed to, to correct the, the happenstance after it has happened. But isn't safety also economic security? You and I had a conversation a few yeah. years ago about really what it takes to survive and the fact that some people don't have economic situations that allow them to survive without crime many people but that can, that does not exist outside of relationships right so economic security is also that we don't mind paying those young men who are playing ball in front of our houses to cut our lawns it is that we don't mind hiring them to work at our nonprofits and grooming them up through the ranks like you did me right that me. is it is not it Safety is all about that relationship. Economics is all about that relationship. It's all connected. But it's all housing security too. It's having a place to yeah. live that you don't That's have it. to go and couch surf. And we know a lot of teenagers have always, yeah. since I've been doing this work and couch surfing, when mama loses her job or whatever, or house or whatever, father gets locked up. We've worked with young people who um, have had to live, and you know this personally, with yeah. adults in the community because- yeah their home got disrupted and now they're living with somebody. Maybe it's a little illegal, but you got to give them shelter, right? And yeah. so we've got to think through the economic safety net of our community. And that's when you talk about the basic needs and I talk about housing needs, like yeah. how do we redistribute our resources in such a way that yeah. we create places where people are not constantly desperate? Yeah, because imagine, you know, going back to an early example of the reused diaper, Imagine the man of that household and the, the pressure, the man who created that baby and the pressure that he must feel. Or the 15 year old son who has the option of going out and help the mother get a new diaper, right? Or the 15 year old daughter who has the option of doing certain things. I'm not just gonna say it's the sons and the way that people, it's certainly yeah. 
the black market economy is a big part of Detroit's economy and we are not quantifying- Or the mother that's forced to leave that child, right? Like, does the mother even get to stay with their child? They That mother might put that baby in a crib and go, yeah. So I, I guess the question, the existential question is what is one that Donna raised earlier about how we can be useful to ourselves. And I would say this, and Alea, your parents are Panthers, one of whom is a huge mentor to me, who will call me up and correct me if I step out of line, <laughs> however he sees fit. And one of the things that I can say about Black folks is we have always figured out how to create that circular economy and how to maximize on that uh, what we call Black market or off-market kind of economy. My, my question is, how do we enshrine that, that kind of a structure in policy? Because what we see and what we have seen in history, in history is that every time a structure like that is created, a self-serving, self-determined structure within our community, it is destroyed. Yeah. It, is, it is urban renewal. It is blockbusting. It is massacred. It is all, all of these things, right? Uber and Jitneys, right? Yeah. So how, how do we... <laughs> How do we sort of do both at the same time? And it seems like you're kind of like walking this, this really fine line. Yeah. I mean, so I would, you, if you had asked me this question three weeks ago, I wouldn't have an answer. But I've been working on, ironically, I've been working on the answer to this. I think we have to solve, I think our community needs spaces where we solve these problems in lockstep from, and I think it's, it's gonna be a heavy lift, right? I'm gonna just be real, right? But it, it, it is, if we bring, if we approached individuals the way we approached corporations, Detroit would change in five years, period. Mm -hmm. Like if we invested in individuals and said, hey, you know, you statistically are at a high risk for either shot, being shot or shooting somebody, right? Can we get you some therapy? Can we get you, get you engaged in an active career path? Can we support you, right? That's gonna be expensive. That's, that's no light lift. And the payoff is gonna be hundreds of thousands of dollars in savings from things like court costs, crime scene cleanup, um, just you name it, right? Damages to public spaces when um, tragedies happen. So. Well, um, I, I, I also wanna say that I think the self-help has to be a part of it, right? I think that we've gotta be about um, creating our own spaces engaging in our own economics. I think we also have to be about trying to help every young person we can, intervening where we can, finding ways to work together. I really wanna find a way to work with Force Detroit in 2021. I know we've been talking about that since 2016 or 2017 when you founded Force Detroit, <laughs> but um, I really do um, appreciate your mission and your work and the research you do. I really believe in research-led work. Um, I think also that we've got to be willing to identify policy solutions wherever possible and make demands on our government because even while we're engaging self-help, we're still paying taxes. 
even while we're mm -hmm. engaging self-help, we're still being accountable to a larger government. And I think collectively, if we think through what we want, we can create and dream a better world. The thing I always want to remember is what happened in um, 1930s when you had um, Franklin Delano Roosevelt elected to, um, to the president of the United States. And we had you know, reached this point where people were living in Hoovervilles. You know, Hoovervilles were people yeah. were living in tents yeah. in yeah. the street and they were saying President Hoover was responsible for That's that. Right. And a lot of people worked together to create a new deal. And the new deal worked really, really well for white people, right? Well, we need a new New Deal that works for all people, not just white people. We need to really make those demands collectively with other people of color and say, it is time for us to have our say. And the other thing for me is that we've got to begin infusing environmental practices into everything that we do. And I, I mean, I, I would add that we have to teach, um, we have to learn, teach and embrace our history We've got to love ourselves. We've got to love our people. We've got to be okay in those uncomfortable spaces with each other. Like none of this is even imaginable if we don't enjoy like our own culture, our own people, right? So if we are, um, you know, the, the person questioning, you know, oh, you live in Detroit, right? If we are bringing black elitist values to community spaces Say you know, we we are the problem say you know? it so we we need to be in <laughs> yeah. Yeah, i so agree with that and it's that that term i learned a couple of years ago that i just love is to decolonize my thinking yeah. and i think it is in, in, you know contingent upon all of us not to do it once but to continually decolonize how yeah. we because we have been brainwashed from the time we were kids we were brainwashed we were brainwashed i was thinking about this the other day to see the cops as the good guy yeah time you were as a kid the cop was always the good guy right and we have yeah. to decolonize our thinking and understanding that cops are people some of them are good yeah. and some of them are absolutely awful people and wearing a blue uniform does not determine the difference okay so we need yeah. to hold people individually accountable and not just see it but we have to decolonize our thinking um so that we can see and love each other. And the, the other thought I have is that we have to understand everybody has a different role to play, okay? We absolutely needed people in the streets during the protests, standing between the police and the protesters and, and trying to divert the rubber bullets. We needed that, mm -hmm. right? And we absolutely needed the people in the streets really making and demands on our police department to change. We actually needed people on that side doing that work too. And we need people who are writing about it like Bridge Detroit does. We need activists who are talking about it all, observing it. We need to understand everybody can't play the same position. In order to win, we've got to have people in different positions and be mutually respectful of the work. And it goes back to the relationships, right? If we're in relationship with all those people in different places, right? The, the few of us that are in the corporate boardrooms that bring these issues of equity and diversity up, now we have places to lift our people into in terms of career paths, right? We have um, ways to, to get into those companies to get investment directly into community and not just into uh, pet projects, right? Yeah, yeah absolutely.
Listen, where are you physically I, located now, Ale? I just want to know where your office is physically located when you get yeah. back to having an office. So we're in the um the block, uh, which is a, a lot of nonprofit office spaces are there, but we're branching out into the neighborhoods this year. And so we're thinking about getting a neighborhood space, actually. I know just the space. Okay. Well, I would love to talk to you about that. <laughs> talk to the talk, talk to your mentor, Donna Gibbons Davidson. <laughs> that conversation and figure out um, how we can um, possibly either co-locate or help you find a home. Um, it's important to have these homes. One of the things I'm really into right now is making sure that we have hubs in the community where people can come to to get the support they need. And sometimes that means buying a house, fixing it up, having offices on the first floor, having somebody live on the second floor. And sometimes it means something entirely different, but figuring out how to make sure that people who live inside of neighborhoods have places to go, connected to other places where people are inside of communities so that we develop our own networks across Lower East Side, which is our home, but certainly across the city of Detroit. Right, right, right. Alea, we really appreciate your work uh, and we, we value what you bring to the table and that tension that you carry so well. We couldn't do we couldn't do what we do and play our role if you didn't play yours. And so we love you for that. And thank you for joining us. If you have topics that you want discussed on Authentically Detroit, you can hit us up on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram on Authentically Detroit or email us at authenticallydetroit at gmail.com. Donna, you have, Donna has shout outs prepared, y'all. She never has shout outs prepared. I know I have to prepare because by the end of the day, sometimes my brain is just not doing that. But I do want to shout out Chase Cantrell. I shouted him out earlier. I appreciate you, Chase. And I look forward to continuing to work with you. I'm going to um, shout out Kwaku Osei, um, who started an initiative, Black Women Lead, that featured me. Last month, I really appreciate getting um, recognition for work. I don't do anything for recognition, but I want to thank people who lift me up because it really did make me feel good to see positive things said. And uh, I want to thank um, the women in our community. Um, where would we be without our women? Um, I'm talking about our Black women. I'm talking about our mothers, our grandmothers, our aunts, our godmothers, our sister friends. I was reading something the other day that infant mortality had really dropped in the city of Detroit. And it has so much to do with doulas and sister friends, yes, not make yes. the day, but it's really the doulas and the sister friends who get in that birthing room who are educating people. Thank you for um, the work that you have done because it's not one of us, it's all of us. And I've yeah. increasingly moved away from the concept of the nuclear family as the organizing unit of our community. I think our community has to be much bigger than the nuclear and say that we are more communal because we need each other and lean on each other and give each other so much. And um, I appreciate those people who poured into me as a mother, now as a grandmother, who poured into my children and to my new granddaughter. Yeah, she is. Y'all are beautiful. I enjoy seeing y'all on Facebook. <laughs> Uh, I want to shout out uh, the Detroit URC, uh, the Urban Research Center out of the University of Michigan and the School of Public Health. I don't know of any other academic community partnerships that really champion um, community-based participatory research like that Collaborative does and not only performing uh, equitable research with community, not you know, by, not for, but with community, but also figuring out 
and leveraging uh, their positioning to raise funds to fund the interventions that come out of said research and to do that work in practicum. So I appreciate that institution for not just adding to the grandiosity of the institution, but really doing the work. I was able to uh, host a networking social with them just today. So I, that's fresh on my mind. I also uh, would like to wish a happy belated Mother's Day to all of the mothers, including my mama um, and Alea Harvey Quinn, shout out to you. I cannot believe we've been on almost two years and this is your first time, but I am certain that it will not be the last. Do you have any shout outs? Children. Alea's oh. got her story. I can't even believe it. <laughs> <laughs> Me either. Me either. It's a lot. And you know um, what? I have this to say also. Alea's sister posted a picture of her mother. Your mother is so beautiful. <laughs> Yeah, she's aging backwards. That, I'm like, Mama, stand over there. You're making us look bad. I had to look at her twice. I was like, that cannot be your mother. So she is gorgeous. And, yeah. you know, we always talk about your father, but I know your mother is a bad woman also, right? Yes, she, she is, is. an accomplished, beautiful woman. And I want to lift her up this Mother's yeah. Day. Yeah, yeah, us too. I spent the whole Mother's Day sleeping in her bed. So we were just, me and her just resting. It was beautiful. <laughs> Yeah. Um, so Force Detroit is having a webinar tomorrow about fun peace. This the conversation about what it looks like, what these calls are nationally to increase resources to decrease gun violence. That's Wednesday, May 12th. Yes. And so we will have um we will have one of our uh national network folks who was a lead correspondent for the White House work around um, embedding that work in the infrastructural bill. Mm. And so, and we're gonna talk to some local folks about why this is necessary. And my little sister and sister and aunt mama, thank you all for showing up in my life. It is because of you that I'm able to do this work and still parent effectively parent both my organization and my children. They little stepmamas over the organization too. <laughs> um, so my little sister Najanava is leading that conversation. So excited for that tomorrow. Make sure we have the link. I have the link to that. I actually tried to get, I'm on the board of the URC and I tried to get into the networking social and it just never worked. Oh no, I'm sorry that happened. <laughs> <laughs> It was so I just other things to do, but anyway. Yeah. I know you weren't short on your list of things to do. Listen, we thank you so much for listening. We want you to catch the wave. See you next time.